The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 20, David Platt shows us how the gospel affects the way followers of Jesus from among all nations relate to governing authorities. The purpose of this Secret Church is definitively not to advocate for a political position, party, or candidate in any particular country. Rather, the purpose is to establish biblical foundations for understanding how the character of God and the content of the gospel totally transform the way we view and respond to the government. Along the way, we will examine how these biblical foundations help followers of Christ promote love and preserve unity, even when we disagree on policies and politics. Ultimately, we will encourage one another to live faithfully as citizens of heaven while we live as citizens on earth. For the Secret Church 20 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit radical.net slash sc20. And this is Secret Church 20, Episode 1. All right, this is a... uh really strange, really good night. So I stand here in a room alone while there's like three other people behind cameras and a soundboard. Besides that, you are all scattered literally around the world in every state in the United States in countries including Afghanistan, Australia, Botswana, Cambodia, Croatia, El Salvador, India, Kyrgyzstan, Laos, Malta, Nepal, Niger, Syria, Slovakia, Senegal, Tajikistan, Turkey, Vietnam, Zambia. I could keep going. The list is really long all around the world. Almost all of us spread out in homes as we're surrounded by a worldwide pandemic. But how powerful is this? Like in the middle of a pandemic to be able to gather together with tens of thousands of people all around the world, like you're gathered together with people in Tajikistan right now and Turkey and Botswana and Syria in the middle of a pandemic to be able to gather together with tens of thousands of people and open up God's word and for us to pray together like all at the same time lifting our voices and our hearts before God, remembering our persecuted brothers and sisters who, by the way, just so happen to worship all the time in seclusion, which leads into one of the things I'm most exhilarated about tonight because tonight we are launching a new initiative called Urgent that's focused on getting the gospel to the front lines of the hardest to reach places in the world. But more on that later. I just want you to know, I am praying that God would smile upon this unique gathering tonight. As we're scattered in all these places, that God would speak to us through his word about what it means out of this topic, what it means to glorify him as citizens of different countries in the world and as citizens of one kingdom in heaven. So I'm praying God will draw many people into his kingdom tonight and draw many people into his kingdom as a result of what happens 
tonight. So let's do this. By the way, quick word of explanation about the bandage on my head. Long story short, one morning a few weeks ago, blacked out all of a sudden, fell on a sharp edge and gashed my forehead all the way down to my skull. So a concussion, a lot of stitches and cardiologist appointments later. I'm good now by God's grace, but for your sake, I'm keeping what's under this bandage covered for now. You don't want to look at that all night long. So hopefully you have a study guide in your hands, either in a booklet or electronically that we're going to walk through together. So this study guide is saturated with scripture that we won't have time to turn to in our Bibles. Some we won't even have time to read tonight, but I hope this will be a resource that you can go back to in the days ahead, dive in deeper. If you are new to Secret Church, know that I'm not under any illusion that this is the best way of walking through God's word to digest it fully. This is going to be like standing in front of a fire hydrant. But the reason why Secret Church is set up this way is because whenever I gather with persecuted Christians around the world who are risking their lives to be together, they want to make the most of that time, like learn as much of God's word as possible. So tonight I'm going to open up the fire hydrant in a way that I hope will enable you to soak it in for days, months, years to come. You'll see that there are blanks for you to take notes. I always say I hope you've chosen wisely in the person you're sitting next to, but I realize many of you don't have a lot of options tonight, maybe no options uh, for help. So I, I think there's some ways for, that we've got set up for uh, you to get caught up if you miss a blank or if you start to doze, but don't doze. Like stand up, walk around if you need to, do jumping jacks if necessary. Yes, it's going to be a long night, but I pray that in the next few hours you will experience a joy in and a hunger for God's word that makes you realize this is better than anything this world has to offer us. And yes, we have a pretty heavy weighty topic to look at tonight. So God, government, and the gospel. Just so you know, there were a variety of wise counselors who warned me not to cover this topic and a variety of wise counselors who insisted I cover this topic. And I made a decision right before last Secret Church to cover this topic this year because I believe this is needed for every Christian in every country and specifically for the church in my country as we're in an election year. So that belief was confirmed less than... Two months later, when I woke up one Sunday morning for what I thought would be a normal day here at McLean Bible Church in Metro Washington, D.C., our worship gatherings on Sunday are at 9, 11 in the morning, 1 in the afternoon, and at the end of our 1 o'clock worship gathering, I just finished my sermon standing here. I stepped off this stage like I do every week for what I thought would be a couple of minutes of quiet reflection as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, but I immediately heard a voice calling me backstage where couple of our pastors and a representative from the White House told me that the President of the United States was on his way here, would arrive in about five minutes, and would like for us to pray for him. So a flood of thoughts went through my head, a number of which could have risen to the top and affected my decision one way or the other, but the one that rose to the top was 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. We'll look at it later tonight, where we are commanded to pray for kings, for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I quickly agreed to lead our church to pray for our president on stage. I came back out to lead the Lord's Supper. Then I walked to this side over here where the president arrived about a minute later. 
I won't go into the details of our short conversation backstage, but then I walked back on stage, reminded those gathering of something I'd actually just said at the end of my sermon, that what unites us as a church is not our ethnicity or our background or our politics. We have members from over 100 countries in our church with many different personal perspectives, political backgrounds. I reminded them what unites us is the gospel, the word of God, which tells us, then I read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. I said, we have a unique opportunity today to pray as a church over the president of the United States. So I prayed for him and for other government leaders from different parties, for our country. When I finished, the president walked off stage without comment. We celebrated some missionary heroes among us. Then we sent one another out like we do every Sunday with the Great Commission. I immediately knew though that what had happened would be received and perceived in different ways by everyone from press to members of our church. And those different responses were confirmed soon thereafter as I spent most all of Sunday night, Monday morning, writing a letter to our church family, one, to communicate what had happened, and then two, to reemphasize how I only want to lead our church with God's word in a way that transcends political party or position that celebrates the unity we have in Christ amidst all of our differences. Little did I know that as a result of that prayer on Sunday afternoon and that letter on Monday morning, I would find myself at the center of a social media firestorm with all kinds of opinions being expressed, words being twisted, I would find myself turning down a numerous request to be on national TV. On Sunday, I made a lot of people glad and other people mad. And on Monday, I turned around and took everyone who was glad and I made them mad. So I figured out a way to be labeled both a far right-wing conservative and a far left-wing liberal in less than 24 hours. Like that's not easy to do. And we'll talk over the course of the night about why that was so controversial because some of you are already thinking, like, what's the problem? You prayed for the president. And we're going to get to why even doing that on this stage, disappointed or upset or confused, even many followers of Jesus. But as I watched all of this unfold during that week, I couldn't help but to conclude, like, we are, we're sick. Accusation, contempt, derision, division among professing Christians. And it's not just this side or that side. I think it's all of us, including me. Like, I don't believe the church is healthy amidst the current political climate in my country. And then I think about other countries. I think about persecuted brothers and sisters in countries where the government says it's illegal for Christians to gather together. So how does the gospel compel them to respond to government in those situations? Then I think about missionaries. We have a lot of missionaries in different countries who are part of Secret Church, citizens of one country, but living in another country. So how do they relate to government, to the country from which they came, the country in which they live? The reality is every single one of us lives under some form kind of government, which means every single one of us needs to know what God says about government and how the gospel of Jesus Christ totally transforms the way we live and view governments around us and around the world. So let's dive into that study guide. So many questions, and I'm just gonna run through these to set the stage. First, how does God relate to government? So that's the most important question. How does God relate to government? Leaders, institutions, how do they relate to God? Which then affects how should Christians relate to government? Should we gladly submit to government, work to change government, or both, or neither? And what do we do if we don't agree with, with who our governing authorities are? What do we do if we don't agree with how those authorities are governing? And how does this apply to different types of governments in different parts of the world? As we mentioned, how does this apply to Christians who are being persecuted under their government? 
And when a government is persecuting Christians, should Christians stay amidst that persecution or flee from it? Is it ever right to disobey the government? If so, when? What does that look like? Should Christians work in government? What is justice? How does it relate to government? How should a Christian in government decide what is a crime and what the punishment should be? So is that based on the Bible or some other standard? Should all sin be a crime? If not, then what sin should or should not be a crime? Keep going here. Should Christians vote? If so, who should Christians vote for? And what about situations where one candidate represents injustice X and the other candidate represents injustice Y? Who do you vote for then? Along those lines, should Christians align with political parties, positions, or personalities, or presidents? If so, which party, position, personality, president? What should Christians do when they disagree about political parties, positions, or candidates? Should churches exert any influence in politics? That leads to the question of what does the separation of church and state mean? And if church and state are separate, then is the United States a Christian nation? Is, was it ever a Christian nation? Is any country a Christian nation for that matter? And then drilling down the specifics, is there only one Christian position on political issues? And are some political issues more important than others? If some issues are more important, is the level of political importance a matter of personal opinion? Or does the Bible determine that? Which leads to those who preach the Bible. Should pastors preach about political issues? Should pastors endorse political candidates or parties? And not just pastors, but Christians. Should a Christian be for or against gun control, abortion, environmental protection, graduated or progressive tax rates based on income, same-sex marriage, capital punishment, immigration restrictions, nuclear weapons, tariffs, military spending, universal health care. Now, as soon as I list off all those issues, I want to be clear, we're not going to dive into all those issues uh, uh, or every, yeah, all those, every single one of those. Like, we'll answer tonight some of these questions outright from God's word. But as we're about to see, there's so much here that necessitates wisdom from God's word in a way that's not always clear, which leads right into the many considerations that have run through my mind coming into tonight. In a sense, landmines that I could easily step on, that we could easily step on in our minds as we think about these things. So one is the breadth of issues that are involved in any country and across every country. When you think about government, don't just think about political parties or presidential elections. Think about the house or apartment you may be sitting in right now. Because for many, most of us, there are standards mandated by a government for safety in buildings that are affecting you or me right now. Or if you have food or snacks around you tonight, there may be government standards for safety in the production and distribution of that food to you. Like if you're loading up on caffeine or energy drinks, I think there's some kind of standard that makes those drinks safe. I don't know. Even the water you drink, though, is likely affected by a government that oversees how it gets to you or the technology that we're using right now. Like the reality is in some governments in the world, you're forbidden to stream content like this. Some of you are actually in countries like that. You're disobeying government right now by using a VPN or other workaround. My point is government affects so many things. So how do you cover a subject like government in one night? So not just the breadth of issues, but the complexity of issues when it comes to government or politics. There are moral, moral variables at work, economic variables to consider, physical variables to factor in, social, spiritual variables that we can't even see. In any government on this earth, there are competing goods, meaning you have to make decisions between two good options. And then there are lesser evils, meaning you often have to decide between two bad options. And as we make decisions, there are inevitable trade-offs. We may choose this good knowing that it could lead to this evil which leads to debatable co-belligerence. That means you may disagree with someone seriously about one issue, 
but agree and work closely together with that same person on a totally different issue, which then leads to questions about how much you should work with a person or organization or institution or even a movement on common interests you have, though you disagree on so many things they stand for. So you have this breadth of issues, complexity of issues, then you add on the meaning of words. So let me just say these words, liberal, conservative, progressive, right-wing, left-wing, alt-right, left, alt-left, capitalism, socialism, Marxism, nationalism, Zionism, ethnocentrism, feminism, judicial activism, systemic racism, social justice, identity politics, privilege, amnesty, illegal, undocumented, marriage, gender, sexual orientation, family planning, global warning. As soon as I say any one of those terms, all kinds of thoughts, ideas, images come into your minds. Impressions, connotations, emotions. And the thing is, those thoughts, ideas, impressions, emotions are different for different ones of you. And most of you who are listening right now are followers of Jesus. So all the more confusion when you use those words in a world where People, most people are not followers of Jesus. So all these terms have varying definitions and carry varying connotations among different people, which makes me scared to say anything tonight. Because as soon as I say this word or that word, you may be applying a definition to it that I never intended. Like communication revolves around a shared language, shared meaning of words, but when you get into political issues, that shared meaning is strained for sure. So let me do this from the start. Let me at least tell you what I mean when I say these words. So first, government, I'm going to define as the organization through which a political unit exercises authority and performs functions. Now, that sounds pretty general and technical, and it's intended to be both. Because it's not just countries that are governed, so that's why it's general. It's organizations, corporations, churches that involve people with a picture of who exercises what authority, who performs what functions. Now, to be clear, we're going to talk primarily about public government of nations, states, cities, but this is a general definition of government that then leads to a definition of politics, which is the process of organizing people, resources, power, decision-making, and decision-implementing in a political unit. So how does a group, a unit of people, organize themselves, manage resources, allocate power, make and implement decisions in their collective organization? That's a definition of politics. Now a definition of Christian, which again, seems like it would be simple, even unnecessary to define, but there are tons of ways that I see Christian used in my country that are not Christian at all, particularly in the realm of politics. The same goes for all sorts of things around the world that are labeled Christian. So what is a Christian? I'm understanding as a, Christ, a Christian, I believe based on God's word, as a Bible-believing, gospel-embracing follower of Jesus. A Christian believes all of the Bible is the word of God, embraces salvation from God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and doesn't just say they believe in Jesus in their heads. They follow Jesus with their lives. That's Christian. Then there's the church, universal, meaning the body of Christ, which includes Christians from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation across time. So all Christians from everywhere, from any age, comprise the church universal. Then the church local means a group of baptized Christians who are committed to being the body of Christ to one another by coming together regularly and carrying out the functions of a biblical church. And I would describe those, those functions as the following 12, biblical preaching and teaching, biblical prayer, biblical evangelism, discipleship, membership, leadership, fellowship, accountability and discipline, worship, ordinances, giving, and mission. So a local church is a group of Christians committed to doing those things together as a body. So I'm gonna use these definitions above 
during our time together tonight. And I'll try to be careful to give definition to other words that might have different meanings. You might get tired of me saying, and what I mean by that is, because it's really important to clarify what I mean by that, the meaning of words or phrases. So think about the flexibility of language. Think beyond just words to phrases, sentences, questions, statements. For example, what if I were to ask this question? Is the United States a Christian nation? How would you answer that? Well, I would answer that differently based on what you mean by the question. So if you mean, did many of the founders of the United States generally believe the Bible? I think the answer is yes. But that doesn't mean they were all Christians by any means. Or maybe you mean, did Christian beliefs provide the foundation for many of the cultural values still held by many citizens of the United States today? And the answer to that question could be yes, or it could be no. Like in one sense, yes, many cultural values in the founding of the United States were Christian in nature. But for far too many years in the founding and the history of the United States, those Christian cultural values only applied to white people, not to Native Americans who were already living here, certainly not to African slaves who were brought here. So we need to ask the question, how truly Christian were those beliefs in the founding of our country? Without question, founders wrote down, all men are created equal, endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights. But the white men who drafted those words didn't apply them to hundreds of thousands of black people in their midst or women for that matter, which doesn't sound very Christian. You keep going. When you ask, is the United States a Christian nation? If you mean it's Christianity of various sorts, so very broadly defined, not like we defined it earlier, the largest religion in the United States. The answer to that question is yes. But if you mean, does the United States government promote Christianity as the national religion? Does a person have to profess Christian faith in order to become a citizen or have the rights of a citizen in the United States? The answer to that question is no, absolutely not. Or are a majority of people in the United States Bible-believing, gospel-embracing followers of Jesus, i.e. Christians? The answer to that question is no. Or finally, are you asking, is belief in Christian values the dominant perspective promoted by the government, the media, and universities in the United States today? What do you think? I'd say the answer to that question is a resounding no. So is the United States a Christian nation? Well, it depends on what you mean when you ask or say that. Like when I travel around the world, I meet Muslims who say, we have no respect for Christianity because we see the United States, a Christian country, and there's so much sexual immodesty and immorality spreading from your country. Which is where I just immediately say, like, don't think the United States is a Christian country. That's the point. This flexibility in language is so important to understand because when we make various statements, we need to consider what those words mean to other people. This is going to be so important all throughout tonight. Let me give you one more example. Did God call, insert any name, to be president, prime minister, leader of insert any nation? So let's do some insertions. Did God call or even appoint Abiy Ahmed to be prime minister of Ethiopia? Did God call or appoint Vladimir Putin to be president of Russia? Did God call or appoint Kim Jong-un to be leader of North Korea? Did God call or appoint Angela Merkel to be chancellor of Germany? Did God call, did God appoint Donald Trump to be president of the United States? How do you answer that question? Well, what do we mean when we ask it? Do we mean, is God ultimately sovereign over any leader who governs any nation? Yes, absolutely he is. We're about to see in scripture, God raises up leader, leaders and God deposes leaders. God is ultimately sovereign over who leads any country, including who's president of the United States, whether it was Barack Obama or George Bush in the past or Donald Trump in the present or whoever will come in the future. But that's a different question then. Does God personally endorse every leader who governs every nation? No. Absolutely not. Does God personally endorse Kim Jong-un as leader of North Korea? I think there's a sense in which we would all say, no. Well, then what about Putin in Russia? Or Merkel in Germany? Or Ahmed in 
Ethiopia or Donald Trump in the United States. For any of these leaders, does God endorse them, their words, their behavior? Some say, well, no, but God endorses their policies. But which ones? All of them? Some of them? And which ones? The one you like? So I'm just asking questions here to help us see when we say things as Christians about this or that leader being God's man or God's woman, other people, including a world of non-Christian, hear all kinds of things, many of which are very unhelpful and very unbiblical when we're attaching the name of God to someone, something, we need to be really, really careful. We need to realize the flexibility of language. As we think about all the challenges of communication around us, we live in a world where when we need sustained dialogue about issues like this, we have sound bites. We conduct debates over Twitter. When we need thoughtful reasoning, we have emotional rants that are oftentimes one-sided. Any one of us can get fired up, have an imaginary, an imaginary dialogue with people who may think differently from us. We can fire off all kinds of thoughts in ways that we would never do if we were sitting across the table having a thoughtful conversation that involves Listening. When we need to listen first, our strategy today is to try to speak louder. And whoever speaks the loudest or is even most obnoxious, they get the most attention. Think about the challenges of communication, the importance of context. So to define that term, context is the parts of a discourse that surround a word or passage and can throw light on its meaning. So if you say something in one context, then it's taken out of that context, put over here in a different context, it can mean something totally different. Take it from a preacher who has preached all kinds of sermons and long sermons for that matter, but who's seen a couple of sentences taken out of a sermon or a letter put into a video clip or an article over here that goes viral to suddenly mean something I never intended it to mean, which would have been clear if it had been heard or seen in the context of a really long sermon. So physical context matters. You know this. If, I'm, if I say I'm going to play football here in the United States and I say I'm going to play football in Brazil, that's going to mean something very different. Cultural context matters, social context, temporal context matters. Even, even tonight, speaking in the middle of a pandemic about these days sounds very different than I was talking about these days a year ago. And spiritual context matters. When I speak to a Christian audience that loves the gospel and I speak to a non-Christian audience that is opposed to the gospel, that matters. And in all of this, context is not always clearly defined. Even now, as I'm speaking to a global audience where this or that word could mean all kinds of different things or be taken in different ways in different contexts. Even here, just the United States, Caucasian, African-American, Asian-American, Native American, men and women, hear different things different ways. So, man, the more I walk through this, the more I'm thinking, why did I take this on? Then, then you add on the understanding of covenants. So let me explain what I mean by that. Then I'll tell you why it's really important. So a biblical covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties with God as the guarantor and enforcer of the agreement. And we see covenants, agreements like this all throughout scripture. So in Genesis 1 through 11, we see God's covenants with all humanity. First, God's covenant with Adam. Genesis 1 describes God's creation of man and woman. And then God said about midway through this passage in your notes there, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Then Genesis 2 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Then at the end of that chapter, we're introduced to the marriage covenant under God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Genesis 1 and 2 is describing a covenant of common grace, meaning this is a covenant with Adam and Eve as they represented all people, all people, not just a special group of people. God calls all people to obey and walk with him, to enjoy and work the ground, and to multiply through marriage. So there it is, a little romance for this Friday night. For those who are married, be fruitful and multiply. So uh, you make jokes. I don't, I don't even know if somebody's smiling right now. It's hard to tell a joke when nobody is sitting in front of you. That doesn't, doesn't really have the same effect. Any, anyway, uh, this is God's covenant with Adam. That then sets the stage for you start making myself laugh. And that, that then sets the stage for God's covenant with Noah. So after the flood, God says similar words to what he said in Genesis 1. God blessed Noah's son, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then he says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And your, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you, your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, and as many as came, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So go ahead and jump down. God goes on to establish the rainbow as the sign of this covenant. This is another covenant of common grace with every living creature and with an expectation of, follow this, just governance. So that God will require a reckoning for the man or woman who sheds the blood of another. So we'll talk a good bit more about that passage in a minute. But these two covenants between God and all humanity then lead into the rest of the Old Testament where we see God's covenants with his people, the people of Israel, starting in Genesis 12, going all the way to Malachi 4 where the Old Testament ends. So it starts with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 when God says to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then Genesis 15 describes a covenant ceremony in which God promises to give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He would be, in a sense, the father of God's people. This was a covenant of special grace with the nation of Israel, meaning it wasn't a covenant with all people. Instead, this is what God required from his people, from Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob. God required faith in promises of blessing, land, descendants, and influence. That then leads to the Mosaic Covenant. And these covenants build on each other as God brings Moses and the people of Israel to Mount Sinai. God says to them, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19. Then right after that, we have... Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, a covenant ceremony in Exodus chapter 24. You look at the end of that passage, the Bible says that Moses took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. Later in Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accord with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So this was another covenant of special grace with the nation of Israel, not with all people, and it required obedience amidst promises of God's presence, protection, and provision as God would lead them to the promised land. 
One settled in the promised land. We see the Davidic covenant that builds on the Mosaic covenant as God establishes David as king and follow this. So just go ahead and jump down past all these passages. This was another covenant of special grace with the nation of Israel that included, included a promise of a royal line that will last forever. You look right above this at the end of this excerpt from Psalm 89. God says, once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. This was God's special covenant with the nation of Israel, not with every nation, and God's special covenant with David, not with every leader or king, but through David's line, this would happen. That then leads to the New Testament where we see in Matthew through Revelation, God's covenant with the church known as the new covenant. So this covenant had been prophesied, promised in Jeremiah in the Old Testament and all kinds of other places. But by, by the way, remember, testament is another word for covenant. So this is why we have the Old Testament filled with these old covenants and the New Testament marked by the new covenant. But Jeremiah had written, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And this is why Jesus uses the language of covenant. When he prepares to go to the cross, he takes a piece of bread and a cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. First Corinthians 11, looking back at that moment, says in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant would not be based on obedience to God's word, which no sinner could do completely. Instead, the new covenant was based on the blood of God's son, shed on behalf of sinners so that they might be forgiven of all their sin. You jump down to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, talking about Jesus. It says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression, transgressions committed under the first covenant. So this was a covenant of saving grace for the church in, follow this, all nations. For all people anywhere who trust in Jesus, what he did on the cross, his resurrection from the dead to be saved, not based on what they do, but based on faith in what God has done. A covenant of salvation through Jesus, who's described in the New Testament, new covenant as the new Adam, the righteous judge, the seed of Abraham, the fulfillment of the law, and the king from David's line. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these pictures and promises in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as you see in all these passages I've listed here. So why is all of that important for thinking about politics and government? follow with me here. Think about understanding covenants today. How do these covenants, which are so central to the whole story of the Bible, how do they affect our lives today? Well, first, God's covenants with all humanity still apply to all people in all nations. Nothing in the Bible says otherwise, which means God gives grace to all people, not just some people. He gives life and breath and gifts and skills and resources by his grace to all people, even to people who hate or deny him. God calls all people to obey and walk with him to work in this world, to multiply through marriage between a man and a woman. He calls all people in all nations to just governance. And all of these things, as we'll see, affect the way we should all think about government. But what about God's covenants with Israel then? Good question. God's covenants with Israel do not still apply in the same way to all people or to any nation. So they never applied to all people, just the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And even when we think about Israel today as a nation state, for example, there are various differences from the people of Israel in the Old Testament. That's a whole long theological discussion we can get into, but we won't tonight. Just think about this. Laws and structures of governance were given to the specific nation of Israel in the Old Testament, which is why we don't obey Deuteronomy 22:28, which says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. You may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So God does not require you or me to make a parapet for our roofs today. 
here or in the nation of Israel for that matter. Because laws and structures of governance are not given to any specific nation in the New Testament. Which is why we have to be careful then whenever we see a command or a promise to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to not just immediately jump and apply that to any nation today. Maybe one of the most common examples of this is 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 when God said to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, when I shut up the heavens so there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Those verses are so often quoted as if God promised the exact same thing to the United States 2,000 years later or, any, or more than 2,000 years later or any other nation. But God didn't give that promise to the United States in the 21st century. God gave that promise to the people of Israel hundreds of years before Jesus even came. Now, is it a good thing to pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways? Absolutely, we need to do that. But does that mean that God is gonna give harvest to farms across the United States as soon as we do that? No, not necessarily. Maybe to make it more applicable, does this mean that if we do this in the United States, then COVID-19 will automatically go away from our country? No, not necessarily. That promise hasn't given, been given to any nation today. God's covenants with Israel do not still apply in the same way to all people or to any nation. At the same time, so follow this, God's covenant with the church, the new covenant, does apply to all Christians in every nation. So this is the picture we have in the new covenant. Promises that apply to all Christians regardless of their country. God calls the church in the New Testament made up of many nations to obey everything Christ has commanded us. This is the great commission in Matthew 28. And the key is what Jesus has commanded us to do. Unless an Old Testament commandment is somehow restated or reinforced in the New Testament, it is no longer binding for Christians which is why we don't obey all kinds of civil laws about houses or ceremonial laws about cleanliness that we see in Leviticus, but we do obey commands like we see in Leviticus 19 to love our neighbors as ourselves because Jesus in New Testament restated, reinforced that command. All of this is really important then for making sure we don't misunderstand the Bible and we don't start applying certain promises or commands from the Old Testament to our government or our nation when those promises or commands were not given to our government or our nation. I remember being in a, leading, a meeting with leaders from many different churches. One of those leaders stood up, just started talking about how we need to apply Old Testament laws to the United States, how we need to mandate the worship of God like the King of Israel did. And as we'll see, that is not what the Bible is calling any of our governments to do. And we need to make sure that we see God's commands and promises in the New Testament as not just given to one nation or one government, but to all people in all nations who trust in Jesus. Like understanding the Bible and covenants in the Bible rightly has a huge effect on how we understand government today, which leads to the abuse of scripture in other ways, the temptation to add or take away from the Bible, Deuteronomy 4, to try to speak with authority where the Bible is not spoken or to reject the authority of scripture altogether, which leads and your notes there that we must reject liberal distortions of scripture. Now, as soon as I say that word, you're writing that word, let me clear what I mean. What I mean, I'm not using liberal politically there, but theologically. So keep going here in a 2 Timothy 4 kind of way. We must be able to discern theological liberalism, which I did a whole secret church on this, on counterfeit gospels, theological liberalism is one of those when people call themselves Christians, yet deny scripture and orthodox teaching on the primary doctrines of Christianity. 
again, much in the United States and around the world is labeled Christian that is not Christian, that is not Bible believing. There are all kinds of Christian denominations, organizations, people who deny the truth and authority of all the Bible and pick and choose which parts to keep and which parts to throw away, oftentimes in an attempt to adapt to a changing culture or appeal to an increasingly non-Christian culture. So if what the Bible teaches about marriage or sexuality is unpopular in the culture, then we either twist what the Bible says to fit our culture, or we just disregard what the Bible says about marriage or sexuality altogether. And this oftentimes happens with language that appears to be biblical, though it's undercutting scripture, and claims to be new and contemporary, though it's rehashing old heresies. In essence, what's happening here is theological liberalism denies the final authority of God's word, denies God's supernatural work in history, explains away miracle stories in the Bible as metaphors, denies the serious, seriousness of sin before a holy God, biblical teaching on the person and work of Christ, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Theological liberalism denies biblical teaching on judgment and eternity and really any biblical teachings that become unpopular or ridiculed. That's why you'll often hear theological liberalism described as progressive. Again, I'm using that term theologically, but it's theologically progressive, meaning we've moved on from what Christians used to believe. Those ideas are antiquated. We are contemporary, which leads theological liberalism to deny consistent teachings throughout church history. Over the last decade in the United States, churches have left behind, so many churches have left behind what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about marriage and sexuality in the name of more progressive, newer ideas. We must reject liberal distortions of Scripture. Then another way we need to avoid abusing Scripture is we must remember the primary function of Scripture. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible was not written to answer every, especially as we think about our topic tonight, every specific political question we have. The Bible is not written to address every specific political situation we face. The Bible is not a handbook for 21st century Americans or citizens of any other country for that matter on gun control regulations, graduated tax rates, immigration restrictions, tariff rules. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible was written to reveal who God is, who we are, and how we can be redeemed by God's grace through God's son for God's glory. And we did a whole secret church on this, on scripture. And you look at through all these verses below, you'll see a summary of why we have the Bible. From cover to cover, it was 2 Timothy 3, breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you start in Genesis 1 and 2, go all the way to Revelation 21, 22. The purpose of the Bible is clear. It was written to restore us to God and conform our lives into the image of Jesus. That is the purpose of the Bible which means we need to be careful then not to twist the Bible to do that which God never intended to do, to answer every specific political question we have or address every specific political situation we face. Like you don't have a verse you can go to where God says vote for this person. Instead, we have something far better. We have a whole book that's intended to make us look more like Jesus, which will then affect who we vote for in any country at any time or how we answer political questions or how we view political issues. The more we look like Jesus, but even in that, so this leads to the next point in your notes, we must prioritize accurate interpretation of scripture, meaning we must guard against making the Bible say things that God has not said. When we come to scripture, we need to ask, what does it say? Not what do I want it to say? We need to ask, what does it mean to all people of all time? Not what does it mean to me? As if each one of us has our own personal meaning in scripture. That's what leads to theological liberalism. 
Now, without question, the meaning, truth of Scripture applies to our lives in different ways. So yes, we must recognize varied applications of Scripture. As we read God's Word, James 1 tells us, put it into practice. But this is where things get complicated among Bible-believing Christians because in all of our attempts to apply Scripture to our lives and the world around us, we oftentimes have differences. And this has been the case from the earliest days of the church. I put Acts 15 in your notes as two examples. First is from the Jerusalem Council where there was a debate among Jewish Christians about how to receive Gentile Christians into the church. Different followers of Jesus had different ideas. They worked together, came to this conclusion in Acts 15, 28 and 29. And then later in the chapter, Paul and Barnabas are about to set out on a second missionary journey together. They have a disagreement about whether or not to take John Mark with them. That disagreement actually leads them to separate from each other. So we see differences among Christians. From the very beginning and today, Christians, remember the definition, Bible-believing, gospel-embracing followers of Jesus have differences on different levels. Those differences are sometimes political, other times social, sometimes generational, certainly racial. We have different ethnicities and our differences are experiential. Different followers of Jesus have experienced different things in our lives that affect who we are and how we act or react or think or speak, make decisions. And when there are differences in the church, that can lead we're not careful to the disunity of the church, which I don't know why I didn't put it right here in your notes. We'll look at it later, but go ahead and write down John 17, where Jesus prays for the unity of the church, that we would be one as his followers, just as he and the Father are one, like a supernatural unity that we would experience with each other. So how do we experience that kind of unity as followers of Jesus when we have so many differences, when we're prone to disagreements, particularly when it comes to political issues? This is where all throughout the history of the church, Christians have recognized the need for theological triage, the need to discern which issues theologically, biblically are most important, which are less important, so we can unite around certain truths and then agree to disagree on more minor issues. So we think first about what is primary, like that which is essential for Christianity. Because we don't say, it doesn't matter what you believe, we're unified together. No, it does matter what you believe. And if you don't believe certain truths, then... You're not a Christian. So Christians, Bible-believing, gospel-embracing followers of Jesus, divide from non-Christians over primary doctrines that are clear in Scripture and essential to Christianity, and Christians are willing to die for these doctrines. So think the authority and inerrancy or truthfulness of the Bible. There's no room for division there. Think the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Think our sinfulness before God, our need for salvation. Think the humanity and divinity of Jesus, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. We must agree on all these things to be Christian. We divide from non-Christians over these primary doctrines that are clear in Scripture and essential to Christianity. We give our lives for these truths. But then there are doctrines that are secondary, meaning they're essential for local church, but not essential for Christianity. So local church is the focus here. Christians distinguish themselves from one another over secondary doctrines that are less clear in Scripture and non-essential to Christianity. And while these distinctions may mean less fellowship with one another in their churches, these Christians are glad to still partner together around primary doctrines. So an example of this could be baptism. Some people believe that the church should baptize infants. Some people believe that the church should baptize only professing believers in Jesus. Now, we could spend a lot of time tonight talking about which of these positions is right. And if we did that, it would be crystal clear that we should not baptize infants. But Presbyterian brothers and sisters would disagree. Does that mean they're not Christians? No. Many Presbyterians embrace Jesus in the same core tr truths of Christianity that I do. But we're not going to be in the same local church because of the way we understand baptism. So how we understand baptism is less clear than, for example, how we view the cross and resurrection of Jesus. 
And how we view baptism is not essential to be a Christian. So we still share fellowship with a broader universal church where we work together for the spread of the gospel, but we won't be in the same local church. Church government would be another example of a secondary doctrine. And it's not that secondary doctrines are unimportant. They're just not as important. They're not essential to Christianity. That then leads to tertiary doctrine, that which is not essential for Christianity and for local churches. I should have put local there. So Christians disagree among themselves over tertiary doctrines that are even less clear in Scripture and also not essential to Christianity. Yet Christians experience close fellowship with one another in the church. Again, in the same local church, despite their disagreement. So here we would put... Well, one believes about the millennium, right? the thousand-year reign of Jesus described in Revelation. Many Christians in the same church may have different understandings of that passage, but that doesn't mean we divide in the church over it. We don't have to agree about everything to be in the same local church. Instead, we need to have agreement about primary, secondary doctrines, then agree to disagree on this third level. So that's how we guard our unity together in the church, by triaging different doctrines. So how might this same concept then apply to politics? This is where I want to submit the need in the church for political triage. I'm going to use two levels here. The first is primary, that which is essential to the integrity of Christian faith and practice. So Christians and Bible-believing, gospel-embracing followers of Jesus divide over political positions of primary magnitude that are clear in Scripture and essential to Christianity. And for those who don't share these political positions, it's questionable if they are Christians. It's likely cause for church excommunication. That is loaded, serious language, and it's intended to be that way. We should divide from other Christians over issues that rise to a certain level, which begs the question, what issues rise to that level? Well, here are some clear ones that come to my mind from history. Support for the Nazi party, participation in the Ku Klux Klan, the kinds of things that a church should say, if you do these things, you're not following Jesus. And therefore, we should carry out a process of church discipline where we talk with that person one-on-one with Scripture if they still continue unrepentant and that which goes directly against God's word, we would involve a small group of people if they still continue and we would remove them from the church. Now, those issues seem really clear from history, but what about today? What about contemporary public or overt demonstration of racism, demonstrations of racism? Or what about advocating or working for the abortion of babies? What about advocating or promoting so-called same-sex marriage? Based upon the Bible, I believe the church I pastor would label these things sin. And if someone continues in clear sin, unrepentant, even when lovingly confronted by the church over the course of time, then there would come a point where someone who is continually participating in abortions or continually promoting so-called same-sex marriage or continually participating in overt public demonstrations of racism and they're unrepentant in that, they would be removed from the church. These matters are clear in Scripture. And essential in Christianity, Christians believe every single person, regardless of ethnicity, is made in the image of God and deserves honor as God's image bearers. Christians believe every single child is molded by God in their mother's womb and must be protected. Christians believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, an institution defined by God from the beginning of time. Now, let me add a caveat here, because not every Christian is at the same level of maturity. Not every Christian in the church automatically embraces everything the Bible teaches, which is why we have a process through which we open God's word together, we see what God's word says, and then we live according to it. An exclusion from the church only happens after a process at the end of which someone says, I don't believe God's word, or I don't want to follow God's word. 
There's a million other caveats I could give here to questions you might be wondering, but I think they'll unfold over the course of the night. Let me go ahead and give you the second level of triage, then I want us to think about why this is so important. So there's a primary level, that which is essential to the integrity of Christian faith and practice. Then there's a secondary level, that which is not essential to the integrity of Christian faith and practice. And this is where Christians can agree to disagree. Christians disagree over political positions of secondary magnitude that are less clear in scripture, not essential to Christianity. And while these Christians may remain together in the same church, these differences may mean less partnership with one another in the political arena, even as these Christians are glad to still stand together around political issues of primary magnitude. Oh, every word there is important. Let me illustrate, maybe illustrate with an example from the 2016 election in the United States. So Americans had two main candidates to choose from, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And during that election, people said and wrote, you cannot be a Christian and vote for Hillary Clinton. And other people said and wrote, you cannot be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. Now, both those statements are quite serious. And if you're gonna make that statement, that means you'd be willing to say someone who voted for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, you, you cannot be a Christian. You are sinning in such a way that you should not even be considered a member of the church, the body and the bride of Christ. And if you're gonna say that, then where are you finding that in scripture? Where is your biblical basis for removing someone, either officially or even just in your language? Where is your biblical basis for removing someone from the church? Or take, a, take another example. We mentioned racism earlier. No Christian should be part of the Ku Klux Klan or anything like it. But someone might say, well, what about House Re- Resolution 743? I'm just making up that number, by the way, that contains language that I think leads to racism. As we're gonna see tonight, that's where we need to be really careful. Are we willing to say someone should be removed from the church like they should be identified not as a follower of Jesus, not as a brother or sister in Christ if they support House Revolution 743? The point is, there must be room in the church, in any local church, for Christians to disagree over political positions that are not clear in Scripture, not essential to Christianity. And those disagreements may mean We vote for different candidates or we support different policies at different times. And we may do so passionately, hopefully based on biblical principles. The goal is that would be the case for all of us. But we'll still disagree on secondary issues even as we unite around core theological truths and political positions that are clear in Scripture and essential to Christianity. So obviously maintaining this kind of unity then necessitates that we clearly divine where Scripture has spoken and where Scripture has not spoken. And that's what so much of tonight is about so that we can have things in the right categories. So what I'm trying to do here is put on the table a serious caution in our speech. Whenever we say, you can't be a Christian and vote for, or you can't be a Christian and support, or you can't be a Christian and think, however we fill in that blank, we better make sure we have a clear, explicit, rock solid, unambiguous biblical basis for that. We need to ask, would we remove someone from the body of Christ over this? So in the end, here's a guiding principle for partnership. In essentials, unity. We unite over that which is essential. Theologically, what's essential for Christians. On a different level, that's what's essential for local churches. Politically, we unite over that which is essential for Bible-believing, gospel-embracing followers of Jesus. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. As we're gonna see in the Bible, we live in a fallen world. None of us has it all right. So on non-essentials, we give freedom to each other as we figure out how to apply God's truth in the time and place in which we live. In essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. We love one another. Now, all of this that we've talked about, you start putting all this together, 
you may now want to avoid politics altogether. So the avoidance of politics is a, maybe an option that starts to come to your mind, but it's not an option biblically. Now, if you've done secret church before, you're gonna notice something somewhat different tonight. I usually include, in addition to the scriptures, a lot of quotations from different people that help us understand different truths. But tonight, I'm, very, I'm using very few quotations from others, mainly because I just want us to hear from God amidst a sea of political opinions around us. And I don't want to side with this camp or that camp, like this party or that party. I want to be faithful to God's word alone. But this is one of the places I've included a quotation, and there's a reason why. So Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from Birmingham jail when racism was reeling in the South, and he wrote, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. In other words, white churches and white ministers were saying, we should avoid politics, even as their black brothers and sisters were being unjustly treated and thrown into jail. No, we don't have the option of avoiding politics. Avoiding politics is disobedient toward God based on Jesus' command and the Great Commission to observe all that I've commanded you. Just take one command from Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we're gonna do that, and politics is, remember politics is how we organize people, resources, power, decision-making, decision-implementing in a unit. How we do politics is going to affect people. How we do politics is gonna affect whether we're loving toward people or unloving toward people. How we do politics will either be just or unjust. So we can't follow Jesus and avoid issues of love and justice in the time and place in which we live. Avoiding politics is disobedient toward God, unloving toward others, and impossible in the world. Because remember, as we've defined politics, it affects all of our lives and so many facets of our lives in this world. We have to think politically about systems and structures that affect the way we survive and live together. So on one hand, we have to beware the avoidance of politics. Then on the other hand, we have to beware the idolatry of politics. So what I did here is I just listed 13 questions that I would suggest you ask yourself honestly in order to discern, is there any idolatry of politics in my heart and mind? Most of us would not say we idolize politics, but just ask yourself, do you ever find your hope tied to the success of a particular politician or political party? If so, you may be idolizing politics. Do you ever see a politician or political party you support is practically perfect, such that your default has become whatever they say, I support them, instead of whatever God says, I support him. Only he deserves that. Do you ever struggle to stop here and understand why your political opponent holds his or her position? Do you ever struggle to stop and ask, why do they believe that? And is there any merit in it at all? Do you ever struggle to admit when your political opponent is right? Do you ever even get mad when you realize your political opponent is right about something? Do you ever side with your political party without thinking through that issue from a biblical perspective? Do you ever think, well, this person or that party is saying it, so it's probably right, without first going to scripture and saying, what is right? I mean, another question I would add here, are you slow to hold the politician or political party you support accountable when what they are saying or doing doesn't align with scripture? Basically, do you pounce on your political opponent while giving your political ally a pass? Do politics capture an irresponsible amount of your thoughts or emotions? And I put irresponsible there because I think about politicians in the church I pastor, people who work in government. They're going to spend a lot of time thinking about politics. It's their job. That's not irresponsible. They still need to be responsible in the way they think about it and how much they think about their job. And those of us for whom this is not our job, we want to be responsible. It's going to look different for different ones of us. The next question, do politics ever steal your joy? Is your joy grounded in politics or Jesus? Is your political speech more kind and honorable or more harsh and hostile? 
Maybe not just your speech. Honestly ask, are your hidden political thoughts more kind and honorable or more harsh and hostile? That which no one else sees but God. Do you ever hate sin in those you oppose politically but excuse sin in those you support politically? Just to give some data on this one, it's not my opinion, straight data. Before the 2012 election in the United States, 70% of white evangelical Protestants said that an elected official's personal character was critical to their ability to govern ethically. Four years later, before the 2016 election in the United States, that number had dropped from 70% to 30%. Basically, white evangelical Protestants totally shifted on how they viewed personal character and political candidates. So this is a question for all of us. Do you ever speak or stand against sin in those you oppose politically, but sit or stay quiet about sin in those you support politically? Or more important, do you ever hate sin in those you oppose politically, but excuse sin in yourself? Two more questions. One, do you ever forget that those you oppose and support politically are sinners in need of a savior? Do you ever neglect to pray for them and share the gospel with them accordingly? And do you ever experience disunity with Christian brothers and sisters over secondary political issues? You know, even as I ask these questions, I can only imagine what some of you are thinking. Some of you feel targeted, or if you're honest, find yourself kind of getting a little defensive. Others may feel justified, like, yeah, I'm glad he asked that question for those people. I just want to encourage all of us to put down our defenses and lay aside our comparisons and honestly evaluate our hearts. And we all, including myself, we need to make sure that Jesus alone reigns supreme in our lives and that politics does not have an unhealthy place in our hearts. We need to guard our love for Christ and unity in the church, especially when we consider the polarization of positions around us. Like we live in a world that wants to divide us among parties, across countries where we're governed by divisive leaders who try to put us all in ideological silos filled with reckless generalizations. All those people believe this. All these people believe that. Leading to broad condemnation of entire groups of people or individuals without even giving them a hearing. It doesn't matter. Politics is a game to be won. Contempt for your opponent, for people made in God's image is the strategy to pursue. Compromise is the weakness to avoid. Don't do it. Don't compromise. Not when opponents are enemies to be defeated. Like this is the political climate in which we live. And if we're not careful as Christians, we will become part of it. And not just the polarization, polarization of positions, but the demonization of opponents that turns thoughtful discussions about issues into critical accusations toward people. That turns political dialogue into personal ridicule. And turns healthy disagreement into hostile, even hateful disgust. Evident in everything from the way we post on social media the cable news broadcasts we listen to, the dinner, conversa- dinner table conversations we have, and hidden thoughts we harbor. Beware the danger of pride in it all. God, help us to hear exhortation in Philippians 2 to have love, joy, the same mind, nothing out of selfish ambition, and humility to consider others better than ourselves, to become like Jesus. God, give us humility like Jesus in the political sphere. Guard us each from thinking that we have it all right, thinking that others have it all wrong. Guard us from being quick to accuse others, even if only in our minds. God, guard us from being quick to defend ourselves, even if only in our minds. Guard us from valuing our rights over what is right, from valuing acceptance in governments over obedience to you. God, guard us from fearing what people think or ignoring what people need, just looking out for ourselves, failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
God, help us not to prioritize policies that help us while ignoring policies that help others. God, guard us from failing to love our enemy, from refusing to hear and learn from others. God, make us quick to listen and slow to speak. And most of all, make us quick to listen to you. God, guard us from refusing to hear and obey you above all. Help us, Jeremiah Jeremiah 7, 23, to obey your voice like you as our God. We are your people. Help us to walk in the way you command us that it may be well with us. That's our purpose tonight. So here's how I would summarize our aim together this secret church. In light of all the landmines above, I want more than anything else for us to hear clearly what God has said in his word about government. I love Deuteronomy 4. God's speaking to the people of Israel and he tells them, you will know wisdom when you hear my word. And not just hear it, but you put it everywhere. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And talk about it with your kids. May, your wor- may my word be what your dinner conversation is about. May my word be what is going through your mind all the time. May my word be what you're posting about. Like, let it be everywhere. We desperately need to hear, put before us what God is saying in his word about all things, including government. To understand what God says, how the gospel relates to government. I love this verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We'll see it later, but Paul's talking about here about our lives as citizens on this earth. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. May that be true in any country in what we live, our lives worthy of the gospel. We need to understand how the gospel relates to government and understand how the gospel is good news for government, how the gospel transforms people's lives to be salt and light in the world around us. So our purpose tonight is to hear clearly what God has said in his word about government. Then second, to distinguish carefully between God's word and our wisdom regarding government. So in a 2 Timothy 4 kind of way, I want to preach the word and at the same time exhort us in a Proverbs 1 kind of way to know wisdom and instruction. Now, when I say distinguish carefully between God's word and our wisdom, here's what I mean by that. I'm drawing, I put a drawing here. Uh, you should have a reference to this uh, in your uh, I'm drawing here, and you should have a reference to this in your notes, from Jonathan Lehman, a fellow pastor, elder here in Metro Washington, D.C., who's written extensively on this topic. And this is a chart he uses that I found really helpful. So when you think about God's word, think the rules of the game, like that which is biblically mandated. Thou shalt not murder. That's biblically mandated by God. Do justice. Also biblically mandated by God. Love your neighbor as yourself. These commands are clear in scripture. Think direct, straight line to positions and policies, meaning it's pretty clear to go from thou shalt not murder directly to we should have laws against murder in our country or all people are made in God's image. So yes, we should not have laws that discriminate among people based on race or ethnicity. God's word is binding on a Christian's conscience, so a Christian must do or not do certain things according to God's word. These things are clear and unchanging across cultures and times. Regardless of what culture, country, time period you live in, God's word stays the same, which means we hold God's word and his mandates with a firm grip, a closed hand. We don't hold loosely here. And then, on the other hand, there are issues of human wisdom. Every one of us is a Christian. Every day is trying to apply God's word in the time and place in which we live to all kinds of decisions we make. And God's word doesn't tell us everything we need to do, what to eat for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Like what decisions to make about what we eat. Like we talked about this earlier. There are all sorts of decisions we make every day in our work, our homes, our lives, our families that God's word doesn't give us specific instructions for, like whether or not to send this email, post that comment, make this decision about our finances, talk to this person about that issue. And our goal every day is to make wise decisions that are based on God's word, even when those decisions are not mandated in God's word, like what to eat for lunch or send this email at that time. So when it comes to our wisdom, instead of rules of the game, think more strategy for the game. 
Instead of that which is biblically mandated, think that which is biblically informed. Which means, now think political positions and policies. Sometimes there's a direct straight line from God's word to a position or policy. What the Bible says about marriage, for example. But there are also issues of wisdom which involve indirect, jagged lines to positions and policies. For example, tax rates or corporate regulations. Again, we want our thinking about these things to be biblically informed, but there's not a biblical mandate for tax rates in 21st century America or Australia for that matter, which means there's freedom in a Christian's conscience. So a Christian can do certain things or not do other things in their effort to obey that which is clearly commanded by Christ. And making decisions like this involves oftentimes complex calculations in various cultures at various times. It's not easy. There are so many different political positions and policies that are not black and white, not crystal clear what the Bible says to do. But you want to be wise. You want to make a biblically informed decision that may involve complex calculations, even a bit of uncertainty, which is why we hold these positions with more of a loose grip or open hand. So my purpose in laying out this chart is simply to give us different categories. This goes back to what we were talking about with political triage earlier. There are issues of government and politics that are clearly spelled out in God's word, mandated by God himself. We hold tightly there. But then there are so many issues in government or politics that necessitate wisdom based on God's word. We may actually come though to different conclusions as Christians about those things. And there's freedom for that. Supposing that we're all working prayerfully to apply God's word as wisely as possible in the world in which we live. The key is we need to distinguish carefully when we're advocating for something that is straight from God's word, biblically mandated, or when we're advocating for something that we believe is wise, it's biblically informed, but it's not God's word. Again, just think about the examples we had of who to vote for or whether or not to support house resolution, whatever. Like we want to make wise, biblically informed decisions, but we need to be careful not to put things in the category of biblical mandate that we must do if God in his word has not said we must do that. Then as we hold tightly to God's word and work hard to live wisely based upon it, that leads to our third purpose tonight, to unite joyfully around God's word in the church as we work charitably according to our wisdom in the world. Like I want, I want in the church I pastor and for us in the broader church to unite joyfully around God's word. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So many appeals to unity throughout scripture that all of you agree there may be no divisions among you. Unite in the same mind, same judgment. Walk in a manner of the calling of the, which, worthy of the calling to which you've been called with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Like God, give us all these things in your church. And not just like a flaky, flabby unity. That means we don't agree on anything. Like no, we're talking about a fervent, unshakable unity that means we agree on what is most important, what we know in God's word, even as we charitably, lovingly work together to apply his word in wise ways in the world. How do we do that? Fourth purpose, I want us to see tonight that God has called us to live justly, love kindly, kindness, and walk humbly with God in our nation, whatever nation in which we live. Straight from Micah 6, 8, which we'll see, straight from the mouth of God. And I put here, this is where I put the chart, that I, a chart that I modified from Jonathan Lehman that I hope envisions how God has called us to live. To see our foundation in the gospel and the truths of God's word, which we hold tightly to together, and then to apply them with wisdom in our lives to political ideologies, to the way we constitute as citizens of countries, the way we think about political parties. And by the way, I should say, I know I'm speaking here from an American point of view. Many of you live as citizens of other countries where they may not be political parties. 
or they're shaped differently. So I apologize in advance. As you've already seen, I hope many of my examples will be from living in my own country, but I also want to draw attention throughout the night to uh, other countries' application there. So to the extent with which, all that to say, your government has political parties, how do you wisely operate in that kind of system according to the gospel? How do you think about political candidates? Again, if that's even applicable to you, to where you live. Government policies, all toward the end that we do justice. So my hope walking away from tonight is that you will be compelled to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God in your nation. And that flowing from that, you and I will live zealously for the spread of God's love and the glory of God's name among all nations. Because God's word is clear that none of us should be concerned only about glorifying God in our nation. We are all created to spread the glory of God among all nations, to all peoples. That's what we're living for. In the words of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Which is why he gave us this command in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all the nations with the goal of all history being one day heaven singing a new song worthy of you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Yes, that is the goal. Citizens of different nations living and dying for the spread of Christ's ransom and the reception of Christ's ransom among all the nations for the fame of Christ's name among all the peoples. This, so how do we live in each of our nations with that end in mind among all the nations? That's what the secret church is all about. So here's our plan for the rest of the night. Four major movements we're gonna start with. Uh, four major movements we're gonna walk through starting with gospel foundations. So using the graphic we just looked at, looked at that's the basis of it all. The foundations that we hold on to with a firm grip, foundations that we live and die for, so we're going to hit those actually pretty swiftly that will lead into then biblical truths. So this is the bulk of the night, specifically 64 biblical truths that we're going to spend time walking through from cover to cover in scripture, 64 truths we see in God's word. If we're going to have a wise, biblically informed view of government and politics and political issues and political candidates, these are 64 truths straight from God's word that should inform the way we think about government and politics. Then based on those truths, we'll come to 12 gospel conclusions. We'll basically take all that we've seen in scripture, summarize those truths under the umbrella of the gospel message so that by that time around midnight tonight or so we'll have a thorough understanding of God, government and the gospel that will then lead us to practical takeaways. Like I just have a slew of takeaways in the end, practical exhortations that I hope help us wisely apply God's word in the time and place in which we live. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.